Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, I'm excited to introduce my good friend onto the DLC Drop Podcast, Lucas Carubia, better known on Broadway as Rico. He has toured the U.S. and internationally with such acts as Liza Minnelli, Frank Sinatra, Michael Crawford, and Bernadette Peters. Some of his Broadway credits include mixing the Who's Tommy, Bring to Noise, Bring to Funk, baby, and the revival of 42nd Street. In addition to several film projects, recent sound designs include the international touring production of Burn the Floor and Big League Theatrical's road tours of Elton John and Tim Rice's Ada, Footloose, and Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, my friend Rico. Dude, you've done a bunch of stuff. Yeah. No, I've done, you know, know, every shiny ball I move towards, (laughs) you know? If I had known all that, I would have been nervous this whole time rather than just being your friend. Oh, Oh, you forgot Van Halen, but that's okay. Hey, you can fill in the gaps. You can fill in the gaps. No worries. I mean... So first you of all, that. hey, before we get going into your career, let's yeah. let people know how you and I met since we've be- become friends over the last year. It's been about a year. It's been about a year. And what's fabulous about it is that we met because we, we, we kind of love a lot of people at this one corporation we work at called PRG, Production Resources. And they made the smartest move in the world by hiring you. And when we were at the (laughs) the global kind of meeting and of all the uh, people in uh, Phoenix and they introduced you, I just realized that's the person I have to talk to because that not only is what's going on now, which I really didn't because I was just so had blinders on with the music industry, but it's basically where the future is going, you know, in terms of just the model, in terms of technology of, of gaming and in terms of the way people are interacting with each other the tactility and the non-tactility of being in remote places by with the gaming industry. Yeah. Well, I I think audio is something that's really overlooked, right? I mean, a a lot of people, they see, you know, they, they focus on the visuals, they focus on that immersive experience. But one of the things that struck me most, and this was, I want to say 15 years ago, plus, do you remember those Bose stores where they had mini theaters and yes. they would take you in there. And before you went into this theater, you would think, man, all this stuff is too expensive. And then you go to this theater and they played you this movie. And then they turned the audio on and off. And they had these big old speakers in the corner of the room. But then at the end, they moved the speakers, which were just covers. And it was these teeny tiny speakers that were making these incredible noise. And I'll never forget the impact of audio since that moment. Now I couldn't afford the speakers, so I, I would just go to the store to, to, to do the demo over and over again. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but you know, PS five is now doing this 3d audio. The Xbox X series that's coming out is doing focusing on audio as well. And I remember when I was, we were in Phoenix, right? Was it Phoenix? What was the, the yeah. Yeah. Scottsdale, Phoenix. Scottsdale, Phoenix, potato, potato, right? We're at the Phoenician. That's where I got confused. And our boss, Jens Zimmerman, for people who don't know Jens, this is a perfect Jens impression. John, I need you to go meet Rico Carubia. He is the sound guy. You esports. He audio. 
You guys meet. Okay. It was beautiful. I'm Is that a perfect Yen's impersonation? That's a perfect Yen's, <laughs> you know? So you and I, we got connected and you were all excited about gaming and you opened my eyes and my ears and my mind to all these audio opportunities. But at the moment, I had no idea who you were. And so I've gotten to know you over the past year and I want our audience to get to know who you are. I want you to share where you came from, how you got to where you are today. Some of those those really interesting stories in the middle of that journey. And then I'd also like you to share, if you don't mind, the next big thing. At least tease it for us. You don't have to give away the secret sauce, but if you could at least give the audience just a snippet of what's what's coming. Well, okay. In terms of where I've been, I mean, I had no idea in my life that I would actually have settled for a career in audio. My life was really everything started when I was, there were, there was things going on in the sixties that went into the seventies called the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West. And behind the bands was this amazing experience called the Joshua light show. And I said, wow, I want to be doing something like that. So I basically, I, I love light and I love it as an art form. And basically I started doing that kind of light show and being from where I'm from, I started doing it for, he then was a 19-year-old musician, and he was in a band called Steel Mill. And I put up the screen behind him and started experimenting with what they were doing at the Fillmore. This happened to be Bruce Springsteen. And Drop something. Lovely. What? What was that name you mentioned? Bruce Springsteen? Oh, Has sorry. anybody heard let me, of that let, guy? Let, let, let me pick it up. I dropped <laughs> it up. And, and, and little, little Stevie and, and that whole gang. And it was just like, they were coming to Asbury Park, where I'm from, to play this place called the Sunshine Inn. Besides all the places you heard of, but the Sunshine Inn, well, well basically, that guy was corrupt. He'd say, like, oh, Jethro Tull's coming over, or Led, Ze- Led, Ze- Led Zeppelin's coming over. But when he really didn't have them booked, he just said, let's call Steel Mill, because everyone loves Steel Mill, meaning Bruce. And I get to pay them, instead of pay them back in the day, $3,000 for the show. I get to pay him $300 for the show and his band. And, but everybody doesn't ask for refunds for the tickets because they're having such a great time watching Bruce and watching the light show behind him. And wow. So, so you, did you do the light show or you were working on the light show and somebody else was kind of the creative director of that? No, I was, I have to say, along with two other people, we were the creative directors of it. Nice. Basically, people were, we just figured out what they were doing at the Fillmore and we were in high school. And we just sat there after school and we just worked on it and worked on everything we could do. And what happened was Joshua at the Fillmore East in New York had a backup light show called the Pig Light Show. And they were selling their equipment. So, of course, we were in high school. We saved up our pennies and everything. And we went to our parents and we bought the Pig Light Show. And we went down to Asbury Park where they were, and we started doing it. And basically for Bruce and for all the bands coming through which were for the first tours of a lot of bands came through Asbury Park because of this gentleman that ran the Sunshine Inn, which was this dirty old car garage from the 30s. And everybody sat down in the, in the, in the, in the grease, but they had no problem watching everybody from Richie Havens coming right or to Quick Civil Messenger Service to, to Alice Cooper to, we did light shows for everybody. Cactus, uh, Stevie Winwood, uh, and I could just go on and on. It was an exciting you know, junior and senior year of my high school. And, and then Bruce was always changing things up and making a performance. He started a band called Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom, which is a wild experience. 
This is all before East Street, you know? And then let me ask you something up, about that. What what yeah. was it about the Sunshine Inn that attracted everybody to that place? Was it that the owner just knew everybody? Was it a connections thing? Was it a, a great location? What was it? It was a great location. And he had naive kids like me running around to all the local record stores and high schools selling, selling tickets. I mean, there was really a music scene there. The, the Stone Pony was right down the street and Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes where, you know, Bruce Springsteen's wife, she was a backup singer in the band, Patty Scarfy. Okay. And bands were coming to Asbury from that Jersey Shore area. I mean, it was a hot spot. As I like to say, Asbury Park was to the 20th century what Rome was to the Renaissance. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I haven't said that in years, but I had to say it. Big time. So, I mean, really so- it became a music uh, mecca. I mean, he just had some connections to get these bands when they first came over to play there first. Wow. Which was amazing. And everybody played there. And I ended up, I was the resident light show. And that was, it was wonderful. So I just, you know, and it's funny when you get so excited about something. So I started studying the physics of light. Light to Mm. me was it. Like I was going to go into doing this. And of course, what we were really doing by doing that and what Joshua was doing was, it was really the the precursor to MTV in a lot of ways, because you had musicians on stage and you were creating this visual format for the music. That wasn't just, you know, going along with the music, but, but doing images. We'd go out and film things and everything else to Bruce's music and, and just come back and, and, and do that. And that was just a wonderful time. It was high school. Wow. So how old, but, uh, how old were you when you started doing that with the light show? Unbelievably, I can't, when I look back and it's just like, what a different time. 15 going on 16. And people who were, were in the light show were, were 14. One who was my, you know, my protege, you know, it's the greatest music club in New York. And I hope we can open it again called the cutting room. Cutting room is known for, and that's Steve Walters cutting room. Everybody goes there after they play the garden. It's right down the street from the garden. So like Eric Clapton would show up at the cutting room, Elton John, I mean, Billy Joel, all these people would, would play the cutting room after their garden show. And Steve Walters is still running that. We're getting together uh, soon just because I'm just praying that he will continue to run it when we get out of, you know, right. COVID. So no, so I was, I was doing that. So being uh, naive and young, I decided, you know, I love this. So I ended up going to a university without walls program at university of Vermont and in, in Vermont, mm-hmm. UVM. And uh, I got together people and I got the physics department interested in why can't I study light as an art form, as this kind of art form? Cause it wasn't film. It wasn't, it wasn't photography. It was a lot of everything. It was multimedia behind performing arts and that's what that's what i majored in i majored in light okay so you had an interest in light you then went to school to pursue it and then earlier you said that you settled for audio so what was your perspective of of audio when you were doing the light stuff and then tell me how did you end up in audio okay well first of all i'd like to go on with what i was doing in light because it's now become philosophically there's there's physicists that that talk about it you have seen pseudo of this i'm talking about holography to me when i went to college university of vermont had this whole holographic lab no one was using it no one knew what to do with it no one cared about it even though it was the only way to actually create real three-dimensional images and to me it was going to be the sort of let's say three-dimensional sets i mean really when you think of star trek the holodeck we were really 
and MIT was a leader in it, which was down the road in Boston, was actually trying to create, and it was costing millions and millions of dollars because the technology wasn't there yet. And, you know, the lasers we were using cost five to $10,000, and now they're your laser pointers. But back then, we were making true holograms on two-dimensional film, but then you projected it out into the world. And if you did it in such a way, you could be in that hologram. But it really had a lot of limitations, but we just thought within 10 to 20 years, this will be the way, you know, the way film and the way everything would be moving in real yeah. holography, as opposed to, and now I'm, I'm just saying this now, because I think it's great because it gave us credence again. All of a sudden, Coachella, what was it now, 10 years ago, a company went and did uh, Tupac, Tupac as right. a hologram. And they used the word hologram. It was not holography. Basically, that was invented in the 1600s for Hamlet during Shakespeare's time. That was Pepper's ghost. That was a mirror <laughs> at 45 degree angle. So that's basically, and people are doing, you know, the holograms of Michael Jackson and they're doing the holograms and all these Vegas shows and whatever else, but that's Pepper's ghost. No one's come close to the technology of holography. And, you know, as I said, I'm just saying quickly because then I'll make the dovetail into sound, but I was invited as an artist in residence, me at to MIT to work with physicists, to try to work on making that happen back then. And we really, really realized that it was 50 to 60 years away, that it just wasn't going to happen. Wow. So, so you realized you had the vision, but the technology was not yet there to do what you wanted to do. Is that right? Exactly. Wow. Now, ironically, maybe later, I'm going to tell you that only in January did I see that technology now exists, but it's going to make it, it's going to be five to 10 years away from making it so it's life size. But the technology wow. is there and they're, they're making holograms on the cellular level of your brain patterns. And of course they are. <laughs> I know. But now to project that, that to being six feet tall, we're, we're still a good five years away. Okay. Years, but it'd be wonderful. So. Tell me about yeah. this audio journey of yours. Okay. So then I ended up, um, I ended up then just tr trying to get a job and, uh, you know, because look, I was involved in the light shows, but I was also doing theater and media. I ended up getting a job at Washington, D.C., actually uh, working at Children's Hospital, doing a video of, 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 of and training videos for operations. It was a very, that was a very heartfelt job to, to be around six children, sick children and working with them and doing that kind of media work. And, uh, and I felt it was great. And from that, I wanted to go to graduate school in Washington, D.C., and I, I wanted to work with kids, but I wanted to work with kids and actually work in, in, an, in an environment where I was actually creating immersive environments using the light show, using holography, using all that. And they were into it, but I had to get money to get a graduate degree. So all of a sudden I got a phone call because all my friends and everybody across the country back in the late 70s when things were really sparse were going, hey, you got to come to the new Las Vegas at 60 miles from where you grew up called Atlantic City. And I go, let's go to Atlantic City. And I went one weekend and saw the amount of people and everything else gambling at these casinos. And then they took me into the theaters and they had, for that, 1980, state-of-the-art gear for, for any type of entertainment. And I said, okay, what can you get me a job as? He goes, we need sound engineers. Well, I go, you guys know what I do in lighting. I go, well, you, you, what do you got to do sound? Don't worry about it. So I packed up the U-Haul quit Children's Hospital because I figured this will be, and I had, you know, I had my applications in for graduate school, but so I just loaded up the truck, moved to Atlantic City and started doing sound for 
the late night lounge acts that came out from Vegas. And that was just so much fun back then. It was great. What and year was this when you, when you had that opportunity? So essentially you were doing this light stuff, but you needed money for school. And yes. people said, you got to go to Atlantic city. You said, this is where I've got to be once you checked it out. Right. And the opportunity was not in lighting, but in audio. Yes. And so how, just through your work in lighting, did you then have an understanding of audio or a working knowledge or did you kind of figure it out as you went? Had a work, had, had a working knowledge, but no idea how to do live sound. No idea. But they hired a couple of other people and one happened to be, he, through my experience, which I will tell you, he became, he's now still working for, because God bless him, he still goes out and performs, not during COVID, but Tony Bennett. But Tom Young, who became, he, he became Sinatra sound engineer and he became a Tony Bennett sound engineer till, till now. But he was, we were all just very young and he was teaching me on the consoles and teaching me about sound and taking care of me. And I was just, so I had a lot of support. So we just kept, we were doing that. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, different casinos were opening up. So he was going to stay at this one casino, Bally's Park Place. And I was going to move to the Golden Nugget, which is, that's Steve Wynn, Golden Nugget, which, by the way, if Atlantic City would have let him do what he did, Atlantic City wouldn't be in the condition it's in now. Sad and depressing. But he moved back to Vegas and turned Vegas into what it is, entertainment-wise, by, you know, by bringing in surf right. and all that high-tech stuff. And also, just in general, I mean, all those casinos were, were Wynn properties. And um, to be honest with you, he treated employees wonderfully, and he was great. And uh, so I'm sitting there, and we're, we were basically doing half, you know, half-baked kind of acts and uh, coming through in, the, in this big, beautiful showroom. And then all of a sudden, once in a while, he invited, like, Willie Nelson. Now, of course, he came with his own engineers, but all of a sudden, I'm seeing Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, things like that. Now, those are the acts he brought in. But Atlantic City was getting major acts. All the casinos were getting very major acts. And then all of a sudden, one day, he came into the showroom and he said, guess what? We have to get the theater ready because I just signed Frank Sinatra for four years. I Boom. Go, well, there you go. That's a moment. So that was a moment. And by then, I was learning. I was, I was pretty good behind the sound console. I humbly am saying I, I, got it, I got a good handle on it. So I hired Frank Sinatra. But Frank Sinatra came with his crew and whatever else. But, you know, we were a big part of it. But I would stand there as the valet, as the waiter, you know, just at the beck and call of the sound engineer. And I won't mention his name, but he was a great guy and, and, and wonderful. And he would mix the Frank Sinatra shows. But I'd be there in my little tux and I would hand him the microphones or hand him other things he needed to help him mix Frank Sinatra and the 80-piece orchestra in this beautiful showroom. And the casino drop was so big, we would all, the whole casino, Steve Wynn would give. One, one time he gave everybody an extra week's paycheck. They made so much money from having Frank Sinatra there. Wow. That's how cool that was. To me, that was a great business model. So I was there and the way I got in the sound, I go, this is pretty good. I mean, it was still, you know, I go, well, I'm going to go back to school this next semester. You know, I, I've saved up a bunch of money. I then, by then spent almost a year there and I saved up a bunch of money for, the, for even the, we were spending hundreds of hours in there making this work. And so this one night I'm sitting in my little tux and it's 15 to eight and Sinatra does not go on late. And there's the core orchestra and I'm standing there and everybody goes, where's such and such? Oh and my I go, gosh. <laughs> and I, go uh, I don't know. And I'm like, it's, it's 15 of Lucas, find him. So first of all, I ran to our favorite watering hole in the casino that we went to <laughs> after the show. And right. it said, 
he was here about two hours ago, but he's not here. So now it's 10 to eight. So I go up and I, I go up to his room and I start banging on the room and go, come on down, please. He's going on in 10 minutes. Where are you? And then I had them paging the whole hotel. And then I went to all the watering holes and then I ran back sweating with my tie off of this, the uh, tux. And I go, he's ready to go on in three minutes. You're mixing. What? Oh my no, gosh. No, 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 no. So, so I'm just sitting there. It was like a sketch where, you know, you were, you were a mighty Python. Just you were watered. I was, I had a hose coming up because the sweat was just dripping down like crazy. I go, no, no, you're not making me do this. I'm not mixing Frank Sinatra for the first time. Like, cold out of everywhere i mean where is where did he come where is he all of a sudden they made me say because they let me say that ladies and gentlemen frank sinatra he comes on the stage and he just starts singing you know my favorite song summer wind and he starts going through his stuff and it was like a half hour and i still was calling all over the casino where is he where is he and i was just i, I was going crazy but you know it was going pretty well i mean because it was just musically and dynamically it was coming from the stage. Sinatra wanted that. He wanted the orchestra to dynamically control their sound coming off the stage. And he mixed in his voice. The guy was a true musician. I got to be honest with you. He's brilliant. Because wow. we rehearsed four hours before the show. So all of a sudden, because the whole room was like Carnegie Hall. It was a white opera house. That's the way Steve Wynn designed it. So you see the door opening and he's tripping over you know, high roller tables because he's so bombed. And the engineer... And I'm going, get over here now. Come on, get behind the concert. Oh, so he, he did show up before the end of the... Before the end of the show, Sinatra saw him and Sinatra goes, said his name and said, you know, we won't be needing you anymore. We're, we're in good hands right now. <laughs> and I went, uh, uh, uh. everybody in the headset goes, hey, nice, nice way to get a new job. And I figured, okay, wow. great new career. I so don't know I if I've ever, I don't know if I've ever heard a story like that in music. <laughs> I've... You know, you, I think that's kind of the, you know, the, the Cinderella story in sports, right? Where it's like, right. oh, the star running back, whether he doesn't show up or he gets hurt or something. And then you have your moment, right? I, I think there's, there's been a number of NFL stars that that's happened to where they, they got their moment and they showed up and then they never looked back, but my goodness. So, so you did that show with Sinatra and then yes. did you continue working with him? Or what happened after that first show? Well, he continued coming back to the Golden Nugget. I wasn't leaving to go on the road with him. I was doing his shows there at the Golden Nugget. He was coming five, six times a year. And I was, I was mixing them. And that was going really well. And, uh, but other acts would come in with really great engineers. Like I'm saying, like, and I'm saying casino acts, like Diana Ross's engineer. He's the one that said, you know something, Lucas? I just think you just have a lot of natural talent, but you're, you're going to die here. You need to go out on the road. You need to go out. Mm. And I said, okay. So then there was a next show. There was a small Broadway show called Pump Boys and Nets, where it was a lot of one hit wonders. Back then it was Nicolette Larson with a song she, uh, that Neil Young wrote for her. Going to take a lot of love. There's all these one hit wonders, a guy from Shauna now and all this other stuff. And they heard my mix. Broadway came down and said, we want you to do this road show. So, I mean, Sinatra was coming in there and I'm going, all right, I was offered this gig. So I actually went out and I figured, you know, it'd be really great for the first time in my life to really get away from New York and New Jersey and see the rest of the country. Sure. And I think it was, a, it was an astounding time, an astounding thing to do. Because, I mean, just being dropped in Dallas is where I picked up the tour and living on a tour bus for two years. And everybody knows. And I've, I've been living wow. on and off tour buses until... 
2016 when the accident happened. I mean, I've been, I've been, I'm a true fledged roadie. I'm a traveling sound engineer. But, so, yeah, go ahead. But I, and I just felt that was, there's a romantic, back then there was a, a romanticism to it. There was a passion and romanticism to it because you were, you were living in this whole closed environment. You were on the road, you were meeting people from all walks of life and to see what the rest of the country was really like. I never experienced it. I never experienced a lot of things that I thought I wouldn't culturally. And even with me, prejudicially being of Italian descent. Yeah. It was pretty wild. I mean, the first stop, and I think I told you was in Texas. You and, told me this. Yeah. Yesterday. On the, and phone. Not in the first one was in Dallas at the majestic. And I think it's still there. So I spent a week in a, at the majestic theater in downtown Dallas, mixing the show. The crew was rather, rather, they were from Wisconsin and they were rather, you know, white and <laughs> being Italian that I was looked at as being, it was the first time I ever felt, wow, mm. what is going on here? And statements that were being said, I was going, I was almost like, I want to come home. What's going on out here? But then when we went to other parts of Texas and I said that I was from New Jersey, as I told you, I, they said, New Jersey, get a rope. Oh my God. Like, What's going on? And just, just to real see the, you know, the other part of America that I did not witness in New York and New Jersey. Sure. All right. You see that on the road. It was quite, quite amazing. And we played, every little city. And I lived on that tour bus for two straight years before coming off it. I mean, we had little breaks wow. where we flew home for a little bit, but just being there, the, the, the band was just amazing because they, they were very diversified and they were great. And you who know, was this that you were touring with for those two years? It was a little show called pump boys and dinettes that was on Broadway. And this was the road show of it. And it was basically like a little Southern gas station with, like I said, one hit wonders, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote the song, Sunshine Go Away With Me. There was a Shannon, the song Shannon that was written by uh, a guy from Shannon, Nicolette Larson, who was uh, dating uh, Neil Young, and he wrote a great song for her. They were all one-hit wonders in this. They were just great to be with. The crew, it took a long time for them to warm up to me. It just was wild because huh. of who they were and where Is they were from. Is that because you're such a jerk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, hard to get a, so hard to get yeah. along with? The introvert? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and oh, I don't even want to say the statement about when there was a they, they would tease that there was a flat tire on the on the tour bus and they would say a certain term. And I'd go, you're really calling me that by saying the tire is making a certain type of sound. Oh, yikes. Suspect. And I'm going, wow, I call home and go. And I got to be honest with you. I go, now I know how black people feel. I go, now mm. I know what it's like. This is because I was, you know. Jim Crow loss. I mean, really, I mean, that was really stunning to me, hmm. but the road still was romantic to me. And I wanted to continue continue doing it. And when I came home, what happened was my dear friend, Tom Young was actually mixing Sinatra. And I wanted to go back to that because living on the tour bus, you know, when you work for those type of acts, Sinatra, or whatever, you, you didn't stay in motel sixes. You stayed in a five-star hotel. They put, you know, him right. up in the street and you stayed in the hotel and you got a nice per diem to live on and eat well. And uh, so I started doing Liza Minnelli. And that was amazing to become her best friend, the, the daughter of Judy Garland. The stories we would tell each other, I became dear friends with her. Wow. And back then, she could sing. She could sing her heart out. She had just went through a, a horrible rehab kind of thing, but she really cleaned her act up. And in the 80s, she was amazing. And we do a lot of gigs with Sinatra and a lot of great gigs with Sinatra and toured the world. And that was just wonderful. So graduate school, what? 
Well, that was it. Yeah, so did you I ever graduate just, from school or did you just Oh I got my I got my BA. I mean I was going through the MSW okay. or and then PhD to work with kids and and use the arts to work with kids. It was great sure. programs. One at CHOP in Philly, Children's Hospital in Philly, and they wanted me to work there. But by this time I was well into the road and well into entertainment. And you know, once you start touring arenas and start touring all the theaters, you just you, you're either going to be bad or you're going to get good, you know, and especially when you have people critical of the way Sinatra's going to sound in an arena, you know, it's going to sound good or boom, boom, as I used to say, two to the head. That was it. You're done. Right. <laughs> and so it all worked out. It was working out really well. But, you know, I, I couldn't stay still with one gig. So what happened was the Rat Pack tour happened in 1988 and things just happened. What, what happened was certain management people didn't like the fact that I remember, and this is a funny story. I got to tell you about this story. So I was just so thrilled. We were playing, playing we were opening for the, the Super Bowl for 88. We were playing in an arena and it was in San Diego. I'm sure it was 88. And I, I come, I, you know, I had kind of a night out. So I, I was kind of on time, but I was coming to the arena and all of a sudden there was this limo that pulled up and this guy stepped out and put his arm around me and these beaming blue eyes stared at me and go, hey kid, because that's all he knew me. He didn't know my name ever. Hey, kid. Yeah. Look at that sky. I know you're from Jersey. You ever see a blue sky like that? Because wow. this is San Diego. Because mm-hmm. it's beautiful. And he gave me a hug. He goes, we're going to have a great show tonight, aren't we? It was Frank. I go, yes, Mr. Sinatra. Yeah, we're going to have a great show. I mean, yeah. this is amazing. So what happened was I was just so like, because, and everybody from management going, what did he say to you? What do you? I go, don't worry about it. You still got your jobs. Don't worry about it. So we go in the arena. We're doing the show. But now, this was a day when this, you know, things were this particular with Frank. So I had a rehearsal mic for him, which was the regular rehearsal grade SM58 that you would see. But at showtime, I would change the mic to the gold engraved Frank Sinatra mic. But this, I was just so enamored with the fact that he had a conversation with me, hugged me. We oh my were gosh. talking for a while. Yeah. That there's ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra. And then the sweat started coming down. I go, Oh my God, this is, I'll get fired for this. I just, I kept his rehearsal mic out of there. I didn't change it to the gold mic. So there's a stadium full of 45,000 people. And he steps up to the mic and he looks at it and goes, everybody stop playing. And I'm going, I can't believe this is happening. Really? It was this, this was the show where he had put his arm around you. This is the show. Yeah. Cause I was just so like enamored and so. It made you forget what you're supposed to do for your job. Oh and I didn't put God. out the gold mic. And that was like a big thing for him to sing in that gold mic. Let me tell you, stop the whole 76 piece orchestra in the arena. And he just goes, he goes, Hey Mike, you changed your hair color. And then he looked over and he smiled, smirked, and he went on with the show and I went, Oh, but that was, wow. that was Frank. Hey Mike, you changed your hair color. Okay. Like he was all right with it, but it was like, don't let this happen again. <laughs> yeah. I think we've heard some stories about that crew. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> not oh, the different. not the people you would want to cross. Uh, legend has it. Oh no no yeah and, and not but people around him. All right. 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 Like like I said, there was one night where he used to make us go out with him all the time. Right. So we're in Little Italy eating. The crew would sit at one table. He'd sit at another table with the gang. If you know what I'm talking about. And we went back to the hotel we're staying because we're playing Carnegie Hall. And they come up. And, and all of a sudden, the elevator's door opened, and it was late. It was like four in the morning. And he, with his bodyguard, were, were in the elevator, and I had to get in. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in there. 
And he whispered to the bodyguard's ear and he said to me, he goes, hey, I got to tell you something. The old man is not too happy with the sound last night. And I'm sitting there and it's like one morning he goes, I got to tell you, boom, boom, two to the head if you don't get it right tonight. And then they got out of the elevator. And I was just sitting there. <laughs> and I called an immediate rehearsal all day. Everybody was right. And then we just busted me. All right. It was fine. Oh, man. I'm sure they just love to mess with people like that. Oh, all the time. Well, hey, but let me let me switch gears with you really quick. I mean, those stories are amazing. The career you've had is is unbelievable. I want to give you an opportunity. I know you had something very, very challenging happen to you in 2016. And I really feel that, you know, everybody who knows you is just amazed by what a positive person you are. And you just have this amazing personality. And but you've been through some really tough things with your hands, which for an audio engineer, I mean, just to think that your career is moving, you know, these knobs and these sliders around for audio and then talk about what happened to your hands. And I know you want to, you want to plug a little bit the people who have, who, who have helped you as well. Yeah. Thank you. Well, okay. So, you know, basically I was, you know, besides the wonderful entertainment lifestyle, this was all about bum parts that I knew when I was 23 in my heart. And a lot of people, and a lot of stars, you know, have gone behind the aortic valve giving out and just dying in their sleep. Famous people, a lot of, I was just reading last night, the writer of Rent on Broadway, the night before opening, just in his sleep, just going. When they told him he pulled a muscle, you know, and it was an aortic uh, aneurysm. So in 96, I was actually doing a show with, with after Tommy, I was actually on the road doing a show because that was uh, a tour they wanted me to get off Broadway because of all the um, fun we had on Broadway. So it was with John, Donnie Osmond in Boston. And all of a sudden, I just couldn't breathe. I was running up subway stairs and everything else. And I, I went to the doctors at Mass General, and they just said, you know, you pulled a muscle. You're, you're fine. I go, no. Uh, what kind of muscle that, did they think that you pulled? I, a show, and, you know, around the heart. Muscle, okay. you know, muscles the heart. I go, you know, I've, I've had fun with my, I've abused my body a lot. I think I know a pulled muscle. This is not a pulled muscle. Yeah. And like, I'm sitting there mixing the show and going, <gasps> just breathing deeply and hard. I just couldn't breathe. So wow. finally I flew to a friend who in Florida, who I grew up with, who was a heart doctor. And he just said, Oh my God, you have an aortic aneurysm that's ready to explode. And I go, why? Well, what, what, why? He goes, you need an operation soon. We need We need to fix it soon. I go, you want to do it in Orlando? And I go, no, I, I mean, I love you, but, and I know you're not a sir. I don't want to do it in Orlando. Can we go back to Boston? And the best guy in the world, Dr. Lawrence Cohn, God bless him, shout out to him, saved my life in 1996. As soon as I got there, because he says, you don't have long. And I'm like, like, where did this reality come from? Okay. Wow. He goes, what about Monday morning? I go, sounds good, because it was Friday. So we did it. And he actually sat there and goes, God, I couldn't believe it. The artery actually blew up in my face. Good thing I had goggles on. I go, oh, great. You just made it. But he was world renowned and amazingly warm-hearted, like the crazy doctor. He saved so many people's lives that you, I, I can go into the stories from drive-bys and everything else. Operating on people before they got in the operating room, the guy was a madman, wonderful, Dr. Lawrence Cohn. So what happened was that heart valves only last a certain period of time. I was putting it off. So by 2016... I was having a bit of a hard time and I called him and he says, you know, in, two, in the 2015, he goes, you got about four or five months. 
why don't we do it January so you don't, you don't get in the situation the first time. You come up here, but I retired. So I go, oh, no, no, no. He goes, I'll be in the room. Anyway, long story short, we went through the operation. Things had changed in 20 years. And I'm going to say this, more of teaching hospitals. So a first-year fellow cut me open and a mistake was made, but something that I can't do anything about. And I went into shock and I went into shock for three and a half weeks and they lost me during the operation. And then, but I came back, but three and a half weeks later, there wasn't a stitch of blood in my body and they can't explain why. And wow. this happened. Mm. What happened was necrosis. What would, and then be honest with you, that's what is frightening about what's going on now that this could happen to you with, with blood supply with, with COVID, but there wasn't a stitch of blood in my body and that's being investigated. But it was just like, because I looked at my hands and they were all shiny black. And my wife said, I woke up and I go, well, how'd the operation go yesterday? And she goes, well, it was a month ago. What? Wow. I go, my, my fingers, all this shiny black medicine, I can't move my toes. What's, you know, cause my feet were all necrosis and they go, oh no, they had to shoot you with this medicine that, that kills your, your toes and hands. I go, what? I go, please, where's Lawrence Cohn? I was so angry. Oh my go, gosh. I can't oh, imagine. Died. He died the day after your operation. What? So it was just like one after the other, but I'd like to say that, you wow. know, I'm, I, I just, we, we had to leave there. Cause I just felt the, I just felt the whole scene was just, and, and I'm not going to name the hospital, but I moved, I went to, cause I, I like Philadelphia cause WC Fields says it's a good, good city to be sick in Philadelphia. So I went to the university of Pennsylvania and to be honest with you, they saved my feet. So we could do a dance break soon. It was six and a half inch feet when I used to have 13 and a half. I still wear, those sneakers aren't here. I still wear 13 and a half with the prosthetics in it. But sure. they told me they weren't going to be able to save my feet below the knee. I was just, wow. but I had to sit here for eight months in this room, in this actual room, waiting for the amputee. But they did save, they did save enough. So I can actually just jog. And, you know, I could, I could, well, it was just, it's just wonderful. And when it comes to the hands, they thought it was going to be to here. Wow. And they saved, they saved this much. And I just feel so grateful. And you know something, it's like, what can I say? Like little stuff doesn't bother me anymore. Mm. A lot of stuff doesn't bother me. And I find myself, like, I always can refer back to I'm alive. I have me. I have my energy. Yeah. I can still mix. If I have to mix with my nose, and that's a funny story because before losing this, I did something in Japan mixing with my nose and then they started doing it as a thing because wow. the Japanese copy. But anyway, I, I can mix with everything. Oh, and I'm sorry. This is the rest of the hand they developed for me. Yeah, show the rest of the hand because that, that's like super, super interesting. I think what's so cool and I think a lot of people t can take inspiration from is that, I mean, I, if I was in, in your place, I might be crying about all that I've lost. And I, I've heard you say many times that you're so thankful for what you have left because it's also enabled you with prosthetics to continue to be able to use your hands with, with these prosthetics. What was it, if you can tell me, what was something that like, that helped you with this positive outlook? Is that something you always had or, or was that something that somebody helped you with? Because I think it's, it's amazing and it's super inspirational. You know, I think it's, 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 it's always what I had. It's always what I had. I have to say a cer certain philosophy, and I'm not going to say religion, belief systems, Buddhism, and, and meditating and just thinking positive and just knowing that life can be such a fleeting moment and that it's just such a, a beautiful blessing to be alive. I mean, sitting in that hospital room for four months, every time 
and thank God I was at a, a point where every morning when that sun, I could see that sunlight, like even this morning, I was just thinking about it. Just seeing the sunrise just made me feel so good and so positive. And to be quite honest with you, the person that kept whispering in my ear, and I, I, I hope I can say this on it, but she says, don't you dare leave me. We got shit to do. And I just was so drugged up. I'm going, but my response, she has videos of me. You should see the videos of me conducting orchestras and everything. I'm going, okay, okay, I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry about it. To my wife, wow. my lovely wife, who every day was by my side and watching and screaming at them for things they were doing and forgetting to do during this time period. It was just, it was just saddening because there were people there I really loved in the hospital, but people that just, they, there was a nine to five to them. And when they just, for a long time, you know, we just talked about it last night. When I got out of Boston and went to Philly, they just thought, they, they, they thought I wasn't going to make it. So I wasn't going to be an embarrassment. They really thought I wasn't going to make it. But with the people around me and the strength in Philly and just my wife and other friends coming to see me, and I just didn't want them to have that satisfaction of me not making it. And, wow. and then all of a sudden, I just started getting better. It just happened out of nowhere. Huh. I just, all of a sudden, they started pulling off. I mean, I was on so much. It, was, it looked like, you know, doing a conf- concert. When you look at Van Halen or you look at uh, Motley Crue and you see rows and rows of stacks of amplifiers, I had 50 medication, like, being pumped into me. Oh, my gosh. Time. I bet. Yeah. And it, wow. it just kept dwindling down and dwindling down until all of a sudden they go, you know something? We're going to now put you in a real halfway house before you go home. And I go, oh, my God. But my hands were still dead. The, the prosthetics people said they wanted good skin. What happens with your, your, your body goes crazy and creates a lot of bad cells. But good cells were being created. You know, mm. I'm so glad I have this much left of my thumb and then that. And I'm lucky, you know. You, and, and I praise all amputees because now I love them because you end up learning how to do things. I mean, I drive and I'll drive in New York City all day long in New York City. Uh, yeah, I'm not driving to no New York problem. City. Yeah, right. What? I said, I'm not driving to <laughs> New York City. <laughs> right. But so, you just you just adapt. You really adapt. I'm so blessed to have what I have left. Mm, you know, it's a great because I'm going to yeah. say this to you because I want you to know how the medical system works. I am waiting for this hand. But they said, you know. You would get this hand easily if you agree, if you'd let us cut you here, because that's the rules that they set down. If you're cut from the wrist above, they give you a complete biomechanical hand with feeling. And that's, you know, 200,000. But they won't give me the other one that I have too much left. Really? Give me a break. That's yeah. what I'm fighting now. It's just, it's just amazing. But the doctors, no. We're, our job is to save as much as possible. And you want to know something? Because when you don't have the prosthetics on, I could do so much. And with these two little pinkies, I type faster than I did before with all my fingers. So that's incredible. Let's, what is the name of the, the prosthetics company that. Oh, th- this company. I love it. It's so great because everything is so much more. They're called naked prosthetics hmm. in Seattle, Washington. So anybody, if you lose a finger or you, and you have something left, a stump left this here, this driver here, but it took a long time. It's taken two years for them to develop this driver for me until two weeks ago. So now I can turn knobs on a sound console. I can mix. I'm trying to Velcro the thing on. And I got to say, you, you have to look at things differently. I don't have a full functioning hand anymore. But, you know, in our business, just like, like if you're sawing wood, it's, it's, your, it's your circular saw. This, this is my crescent wrench. Mm. This is the way I can do bigger, bigger things. It's a tool now. My hand is a tool so I can accomplish things I couldn't accomplish without it. 
you know? I don't have a beautiful hand anymore with nails and everything else, but I have a great tool that they design. But this company is amazing because there's no, there was no, besides Young Frankenstein ratchet fingers, there was nothing available for the last 40 years to do anything like this. Wow. Anything, anything like this. And I'm, I'm trying to, trying to Velcro it on so I could do more with it. But, and I have to use my teeth and everything. Sorry, it's not so pretty, but that's just the way things work. But, you know, I've been going to, and I've been teaching sound to communities and to amputee communities. And, and just to see these kids who are born with stumps like I have, and yeah. the fact that they're going to become stage carpenters in theater, it's just amazing the adaptability you have. You, you, do, you don't know. And I, I'm, just, I'm just so proud that, you know, I've been working on it. And, you know, there are times during the day that I'm screaming for 45 minutes because I can't get my shoe on. Or, you know, in, in my apartment, if my wife is at work and I have to go to a function, I have to call somebody to come help me tie my tie or do, do sure. whatever. Sure. I, you know, I'll never be able to do that, right? you know? But, I mean, it's okay because I can do a, a heck of a lot of my artistic work, you know? And thank God I still have, all this is still working. Because, just so you know, I was gone for 32 minutes on that, that second time. That's why they had to pump me with that medicine. Wow. And they said that, they told my wife that I'm probably losing a lot of my brain function. 32 minutes I was gone. And when I came back, this is what you got. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> thank God. Well, th- man, that is such a... Yeah, yikes, you got this back, okay? Yeah, yeah. Well, man, let me thank you, Rico, for, for being on. I love the stories. It's, I mean, your, your whole story is so inspirational, just from starting out in a completely different facet with lighting to finding your way to audio. The, the Frank Sinatra stories are, are incredible. And then I, I just love how positive you are and how inspirational you can be through your story. And, you know, you've inspired me. You've, you've made me realize that I really need to be thankful for a lot more things and not care so much about the little things that I wish were a little bit different. So before I let you go, is there anything, any last thing you'd like to say? Would you like people to find you somewhere or anything that you'd like to plug that you're working on? Well, I'd, I'd love, yeah, two things. Number one, don't sweat the small shit. Really, really think about that. And to me, that's it. Don't sweat. Just, you know, I'm looking at myself. Don't sweat the small stuff. And when the heart was really weak and, you know, things that I get mad at or even the word hatred, it takes too much energy and just, and just being mad about it, it takes too much energy. So the positive, I just try the positive so much, even though as I get better, I get angry, but I mean, I would actually have problems breathing. So the positivity is the best thing. Looking at that sunrise and, and being with people like yourself and talking about creative new ways of moving the industry. I mean, and, and to tell you the truth, in audio, and we'll just, just keep it there. In audio, to me, we live in acoustic space. You know, a lot of people have said that philosophically. We live in acoustic space, and sound and concerts and theater have always been translated into left, right, and theater much more of surround. But the fact that we are 300, we were listening 360 degrees, the fact that, like what you said, that you and I started working on this first is that the PlayStation and the, and, and the other, other units are using positional sound now. They are now, and there are ambisonic mics. There is the, the Neumann head, the NU100. Look at that, where they take a, a dummy head and they put two mics where the ears should be. And you could put this in an arena and then go in a remote place and hear what everybody's hearing. And you can mix the sound because you're hearing all the reflections and all the direct sound. 
just know the sounds moving into a more immersive, more of the way we hear, you know, right. and that's, that's what I'm really on top of. I've been doing it for 30 years and I, I the burn the floor was really an amazing, I mean, people had the budget to let me do that kind of sound design back in uh, 2000. And now I'm designing shows now doing immersive and now, now it's catching on. And the brain wants to, you want to hear things 360 degrees. You don't want to just hear it out of left, right, or left, right. Left, right, center is great, but that's not even enough. You want to hear once it all heard the way it, Once and you've it, heard it, you realize what a big difference it makes, right? Yeah, so that's where things are moving audio-wise. Cool. And, well, and we'll save it for another time for where thing, what holography is doing and everything else. Yeah, we'll have to catch uh, that on the next episode. But thank you so much, Rika, for awesome. joining us. It's a pleasure, my friend, and we'll be talking very soon, as we always do, basically every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every day. We All have right. projects. All right, All my right. brother. We got to talk to you soon. All right. Have a great one. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. 